You're listening to the Almost 30 Podcast. It's Lindsay Simpson and Krista Williams. Welcome to the Almost 30 Podcast, everyone. It's Linz. Hope you're having the best day. Welcome, welcome, welcome. If this is your first time listening, cool. (laughs) If it's not, thank you. If you've written a review on iTunes, we see you. We've been reading every single one of them and we're so grateful. If you haven't written a review, please head on over to iTunes, click on reviews, and then click on write a review. And if we are worthy of your five stars, we would love it. It helps us bring on more amazing guests, get amazing sponsors so we can give you guys discount codes and free shit. So head on over there. It helps us out a lot. And also, if you guys have not heard, we have launched our Patreon campaign. So you can become a patron of the Almost 30 podcast by donating either $2, $5, or $10 a month or more if you'd like. And you receive really cool rewards in exchange. So one of the rewards is a bonus episode. Um, Another one is some Almost 30 swag. We are working on our Almost 30 hats, which are pretty dope. They have our logo on them. They're so cute. And much, much more. So head on over to patreon.com slash almost 30. You can check out our page and we would love for you to become a patron. Lots of rewards coming your way. So on the podcast today, Krista and I welcome Beat Simkin. Beat is so many things. She is a musician. She is a meditation teacher. She is also the founder of Center of the Cyclone, which is an immersive experience that weaves meditation, self-inquiry, art, music, and fashion. It's really like this amazing, immersive, explosive experience. We talked to Beat today about her journey from basically losing herself in drugs and the LA, New York scene in fashion and rock music and her spiral downward in her eating disorder and various inner demons that she has dealt with throughout her life into this beautiful, joyful, open space that she is in now, bringing light and clarity to so many others. We talk about her upbringing. Her father was a shaman, uh, an intuitive. We talk about her experience with drugs and body image and how that brought her to this place now where she is traveling all over the world, spreading this like really smart, sexy spirituality to the masses. So it is is so honest, so raw, so genuine. We just, we couldn't get enough of our conversation with Beat. We wish we could have extended for a few more hours. So without further ado, welcome Beat Simkin to the Almost 30 podcast. Oh, oh that's super crisp. Great. You sound great. Your voice is, no wonder you do what you do because your voice is so smooth, smooth and buttery. Thank you. It is like, I'm like in a trance already. Well, thanks so much for um, taking the time to speak with us today. So we were, we put little feelers out to our Facebook group. So our podcast has a Facebook group and we always just stay in touch with people there, but we asked who we should have on the podcast and your name came up as one of those people that people would love to hear from. So we're just so happy to have you on um, the podcast today. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Um, We would love for you to tell our listeners about what you do. And I always love like, I love to hear kind of like how you grew up and how you kind of found your purpose. I don't know anything about like your upbringing. I only know much about what you do now. So if you could go back a little bit for us and tell about, tell us about where and how you grew up. Sure. So yeah, I, I grew up, I'm first generation from Russia, Mm -hmm. Russian Jew, and my family immigrated a month before I was born. And so I was born in New York in Queens. And I grew up in New York City. And as I was growing up, everyone in my family, except for my brother and my father, died. Uh, so that being including my mom and all my grandparents. Oh. So, like, one by one, everyone died. And it was just kind of a crazy 
upbringing because my dad wasn't like very paternal he was this awakened mm-hmm. shaman think like Eckhart Tolle meets Mr. Miyagi and so it was just like there was like his patients were always floating through the apartment and he was always wearing a robe and like speaking in parables and and it was just amazing but that also like amazing. super depressing because everyone was dead and studied with him like after my mom died I got really I had always studied with him from the time that I was a baby yoga and meditation and different styles of meditation he took me deep into the work like I was reading the Tibetan book of the dead when I was nine years old like that's just what I was interested in and so my dad after my mom passed away like I just became heavily interested in the work I didn't think I was going to follow in his footsteps but I just wanted to know the meaning of life more Mm -hmm. than anything else and then when I was 18, I got signed to Sony because I'm a singer. And uh, and I'll get to, like, how that ties into what I do now. But I got signed to Sony and, like, got toured around in limos. And then, like, the album got shelved. And I ended up shaving my head and touring the country by myself with no record label after that. Mm-hmm. And I got really heavy into drugs and fashion and sex, drugs and rock and roll, like, that whole thing. And spent about nine years, like, super wasted. And I got sober uh, eight and a half years ago. And in, and right before that, like in that time, I, I also had a daughter right before, like I got sober, I got, I had a baby and then she died of sudden infant death syndrome. And then I got really heavy into heroin after that. And then my father passed away about two years after that. And it was like, that was the grand finale. Like I was like, I don't think I can <laughs> do oh, this anymore. No. And so I got sober and I um, I got sober and like after a few years, like sobriety was very boring and I knew mm. that I needed to figure out some very, very unique way of living that was going to make life extraordinary mm. because I knew I was never going to be drinking again. Mm. And so I returned to the work that I studied with my father my whole life and began immersing myself in it. And, be, you know, just I'd already studied it for so long, but now I made it a daily practice and my life just became super extraordinary and about four and a half years ago or so I got like the memo that I was meant to do something much bigger in the world and so I founded a meditation system uh, which I now do all over the world for hundreds and hundreds of people and everyone does the system and I score it with my own music and I've done it in museums and festivals like the Sundance Film Festival and Mm. Wanderlust and people there's just something about the way that I guide a meditation that's less it's not like, oh, like some girl sitting there being like, you're so relaxed. Like, it's not like that. It's like Louis C.K. of meditation or something. You know, I'm just kind of like cursing and telling people like it is, basically. So there's a lot in there. That, um, I mean, your story is absolutely out of this world. And it's, I mean, sometimes do you feel like that you're so that you know someone just has so many layers as you like I could imagine like when you said that you needed something to make life interesting for someone that's as complex as you and that has lived so many types of lives throughout the life that you have I could imagine you know doing the drugs to make life interesting because life can be very mundane if you are just following the same path and doing the same things did you say is your daughter is your daughter do you have a daughter that's alive now and then one that passed through SIDS no, I just have one. I had one okay. daughter 11 years ago. She died of SIDS when she was four months old. And I, I have yet to have more children. Yeah. yeah. But I will. I'm planning on having more kids. So when your father died, you were you were using or did that, and that prompted you to be sober? It didn't right away. Like mm-hmm. the first year, my dad died in 2008. And it took me a whole nother year of like heavily using drugs, like cocaine and heroin mostly and drinking um, and then a year after that, I don't know what happened. I just couldn't take it anymore. Like mm. I just couldn't, something went off, clicked in my brain and I was like, I don't think I can live another day like this. Mm. No. So, so you grew up shadowing your father and having him in your presence and, you know, as a young girl practicing what he practiced or trying to, yeah. did you have like flickering of that connectedness throughout like using drugs, dealing with all of this death? Was there ever a pull or it just kind of hit you one day when you wanted to get sober? Was it kind of in and out? How did that feel? I think I couldn't see myself when I was drinking. Mm. So, like, I would try to imagine, like, if I was, like, you know, hip and, like, hanging out in the fashion scene in New York City and, like, caring about total bullshit, you know, like, what I was wearing or, like, how thin I was, you know, that kind of just dumb stuff. 
And but at the same time, I was the person at that party who was like there at five in the morning with like a circle around her of people like explaining the meaning of life and like mm. uncoding like deep philosophical things. Mm-hmm. So there was actually like a strange feeling because I mean, even eight in the morning because these parties in New York go on and on and on and like never end. But like I just remember there was like people who really dug me because I was this like weird intense philosophical thinker and then there was people who were like they couldn't take it like I still remember just being like I think I really rubbed some of these like vapid <laughs> people the wrong way because they were just like what is wrong with her you know mm-hmm. um they're like so we just want to talk about clothes <laughs> they're just like we just want to talk about clothes <laughs> yeah they were like we want to talk about the cocaine and I'm like, exactly just, you know just yep. something more interesting like yes it's cocaine it is still cocaine yes all right you did another line in the bathroom we're, we're still here <laughs> you're, uh, yeah you're still hot Good for you. Yeah. so yeah I think I just saw myself like when I got sober and I got sober and I started doing this work you know this this stuff that I'd studied with my father my whole life which is like based in this thing called fourth way principles and I you know just immersed myself in it and something happened where I was able to propel out of my body uh, in a meditation format that I use called divided attention, and I was able to see myself from above, mm-hmm. and it was like a, it was like I had a lightning strike. Like I was like, "Oh shit! Like you're not at all who you think you are. Like mm-hmm. you don't look like what you think you look like. You don't. You aren't who you've always thought were. You're someone completely different." And I just kind of woke up to who I who I was. Mm-hmm. Who did you think you were? I think I thought I was like insecure, and mm-hmm. I thought I was like. Because I wanted to fit in my whole life. I wanted to be, like, like a blonde white girl. Mm-hmm. And not that there's the, you know, like, I just love blonde white girls. But I just really wanted to be that so badly. Yeah. And I was, like, this little tiny brunette. And I think that it was more, not just in the way that I look, but I realized that I'd possessed a kind of wisdom and that my shame around that wisdom needed to be let go of. Like, mm-hmm. I needed, I was really ashamed that I was, like, this little brunette wise like Yoda type person Mm -hmm. you know and I was like I don't want to be that and then I really saw her in all her glory and I kind of fell in love I was like okay fine I'll be her and it's like you almost came back to the person you were when you were young you know like when you were with your father and studying with your father you were still that like you know, small brunette girl that had this knowing and wisdom, you know, and then kind of it maybe, and, you know, I'd love for you to to fill in the gaps, but it kind of feels like you lost your way or just took a divergent path and then came back to that when you got sober and when your father passed and now you're actually sitting in that knowledge and that Yoda presence. It is similar to that. I mean, I think I did return, but on some level, yeah, I think we all go through that journey mm-hmm. of getting lost and forgetting who we truly are. And I guess I am back. But um, but then there's also something magical about the forward piece, right? Because when mm-hmm. I was three and four and five and six and seven, I didn't have the power of creation that I have today. You know, I, I couldn't, like, hop on a plane and fly to Morocco. You mm-hmm. know, like, that wasn't available to me at the age of four. And I feel like there's something to be said for being an adult with the wisdom of a baby because then you can, like make art and create events and travel the world and fall in love and like Mm. inspire millions of people with thought Mm. you know what I mean yeah like think about Socrates at the age of four like I'm sure he was like blowing bubbles somewhere you know (laughs) so true every genius was a baby once (laughs) can you talk to us about you mentioned the divided attention can you explain that divided attention is is a meditation technique. You know how, like, there's so many meditation techniques. Like, mm-hmm. there's Vedic, and there's TM, which is basically Vedic, and then there's, you know, the Shambhala, like the Buddhist stuff. There's all these methods. For me, the divided attention method is so integral because you can use it. You don't have to be on a cushion to use it. It's a technique of meditation where you split your attention. One attention is on whatever it is you're doing. For instance, you could be at your computer working or you could be having sex or you could be eating a bowl of soup. And then the other attention is split up into the sky or the ceiling above you and watching you as though making a documentary about your life. And so you're like seeing the curve of your nose and watching the way your lips move as you do what you're doing or saying what you're saying. And... I also like to speak about it as like one attention on your soul because I 
feel like our soul is like the one part of ourselves that we pay absolutely no attention to, and then we wonder why we feel depleted. So floating to the top of the room and seeing yourself from above, again, it's divided. So it means like you don't just do that because then you turn into like weird, airy-fairy. Mm. you got to kind of do both simultaneously, which is tricky. It's not like... Okay, you know, like as soon as I give people that direction, they're not like, got it. (laughs) Cool, what's next? (laughs) Next, yeah, I'm a master. Yeah, they're like, I'm going to start teaching these online too. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. That's amazing. I've never, I've never heard of that. I want to really, so I want to really dive into your meditation and like everything with that because, but I just want to go back for a minute just because of your story is literally so extraordinary. So what was like a point in your life when you were, you know, into music and you were into fashion and kind of in the drug scene where you were like, I don't know, where you just were like, like, what was that point like where you said no, no more? Like, what was that day like? What did it feel like where you had the moment where you said, I'm not going to do this anymore. This isn't for me. And you became sober because I feel like that seems to me like it pulls people and it's very hard to get out of. Um, I think that it was like getting so dark, you know, mm. the, I was not like, I didn't have what's it called. Like my father was an awakened shaman. Mm-hmm. And I remember like before he died, he said to me like, I will be, I will die. And he didn't know, like he knew when he was going to die, but I didn't know when he was going to die. And he, cause he died of a heart attack very suddenly, but he mm-hmm. had told me for years, like, I'm just going to die very suddenly. I just want you to know that. Like, it's not going to be like an illness. Like I'm just one day I'm just going to die and uh yeah he knew and he was like i know the date i know the time really and and i can't tell you (laughs) and i was like okay oh my god how does that feel as a child yeah or as a a young adult i you know just kind of like he was just so present you know and i felt Mm. so honored to have him as my father i was happy for him like he figured it out he was like i'm gonna be drinking vodka i'm gonna be having sex and then i'm just gonna die and i was Mm. like that sounds great like do it you know Mm And he didn't kill himself, like, he literally, he just had a heart attack, but he said, he spoke about, like, not aliens, but kind of, like, altered consciousness of being, and he was like, they will come and take me when it's time. That's Mm. how he spoke about it. And, yeah, just, he died, and, like, he left me with, he was like, I will leave you with no money, because he had no money, and then he was (laughs) like, but I will leave you with so much love, and so, like, I was left on this planet with so much love and I was basically like the most ungrounded person you had had ever met like my best friend Paul Sato who lives in LA you guys should totally know him or interview him sometimes he's amazing but he he I remember he like said to me when I got sober because I was a DJ for eight years and we were like in the DJ booth together and he was like yeah before you got sober you were the most confusing person I knew like you couldn't even finish like, you'd say really interesting, con- obscure things, but they couldn't tie them together mm. in a way that made sense. You know, like, you were just, like, so... You know those people who are, like... Yeah. Maybe they're tripping on ayahuasca every weekend or something, but they're just they're just not fully there, yeah. you know? And that was me. And so then... And then when I got sober, he was like, you are the most fucking... <laughs> he was like, you make so much sense. Like, Aww. he's like, it's making me crazy. <laughs> like, he's like, you go from point A to point B to point C, and then you get to D. It's like, it's nuts. Wow. So I think I, wow. just, I just felt before I got sober that I, I think I couldn't take it anymore. Like, oh, yeah. And I also, I was seeing a spiritual teacher mm. at the time. Like, there were these women who had studied with my father, and they came together to create a fund when he died to like help me get spiritual help because I knew I was like on heroin. Mm. And so there was this spiritual teacher that I was seeing and she said to me, Hey, you know, like, what do you think life's going to be like in 10 years? And I was like, I don't know. Yeah. You know, like, and she was like, well, what do you think? I mean, given what you're doing right now, like the heroin and the cocaine every day, like, what do you think is going to happen 10 years from now? You know? Mm. And I was 29 at the time. And I looked at her like, you know, when you have like those aha moments, and I looked at her and I said, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> I said, are you saying that if I don't change the way that I'm living my life, I'm going to be just like this at 39 and like 39, I'll be, you know, I was like, I'll be 40 and I'll be just like this. Yeah, you're like, no. And she was like, yeah, <laughs> that is what I'm saying. And I was like, oh, like, and all your friends are like, that. we've been trying to tell her this all along. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, I guess it was vanity. Vanity got me sober because I was like, I do not want to be oh. like that 60-year-old woman with the wine at the party, like mm. sleeping with younger boys and oh. being disgusting, you know? Totally. Did yeah. you did you go to rehab or was it? Um, 
I went to I went to a twelve step recovery program, but Amazing. I didn't go. And not that I would have even had the finances to go to a rehab, mm-hmm. but twelve step recovery really worked for me. And I just I did the meetings and I did all the work. And then you. So I'd like to talk about your work now moving to a little bit to your work now into meditation just as a background so our listeners you know women between their 20s 30s 40s are they're living all over they maybe meditate or they maybe have an idea of meditation so I'd love to like kind of educate them about meditation the benefits like how you meditate what meditating has done for you in your life and sort of what that could bring to their lives because I know the power of it I mean I'm sure you know we all meditate in different ways and you probably meditate much differently than me much more deeply etc but I'd really love for this episode to kind of focus around how we can raise the vibration and the consciousness of our listeners through meditation? Sure. I mean, I think that it has to do a lot with, you know, uh, there was a time when we had religion on this planet, Mm. you know, and we don't, not that we don't have religion now, but I think that definitely our generation and a few generations of, of people on earth have felt very jaded by what religion has become in the sense that We've just seen the history of how it turns into wars and people killing each other and creating all these, like, really strange rules, like, don't have sex before you're married and, you know, like, don't yeah. marry interracially. Like, all these and rules going that to make hell. absolutely no sense, you know? Yeah. And so I feel like meditation is this beautiful practice that um, speaks to the real meaning behind what religion's intention was, which is that we are a trinity as human beings. We are not a duality. We are not just our mind and our body. There is something else going on. There absolutely, positively, is something else happening. Um, and you know that. Once in a while, serendipity occurs and, you know, you get your life gets saved. I've had several near-death experiences. Like, not like white light where I've come back from the dead or anything, but, like, literally, like, I, you know, knew that I was going to die and mm. somehow, like, managed not to, you know? Can you talk about um, one of them? Yeah, I can't. I mean, it's an amazing story. It's, I, like... When I was 24, I started having these weird hallucinations, which, I'm, just to be clear, I don't hallucinate uh-huh. ever. So it wasn't like I was, like, just the kind of person who hallucinates, and here I was hallucinating. Like, it was really strange. I just kept coming home and feeling this feeling that I was, like, in danger. Huh. And there was, like, a strange, like, I don't know if it was, like, a shadowy figure in my room, but mm. I was just seeing things. And the notion in my mind was, you're going to die. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to die. Like, I don't know. It just felt, like, scary. So one day after about six days of this, now, again, like, I was not high. I wasn't drunk. I was just, like, something was happening. And so I sat up in my bed one night, and I had no symptoms of any kind. And I sat up in my bed, and I finally thought, well, why don't I just talk to this, whatever this is? is." And I said, what's happening? Oh, my God. Yeah, and a voice came to me. You know, I just have this voice that communicates with me, and... I see it as my intuition or my body or my astral body, whatever. And it said to me, you're dying. And I said, oh, shit, like, is there anything that I can do? And <laughs> yeah. the voice said, um, yes. And I was like, okay, I'll do anything. Like, yeah, you're like, sounds die. good. <laughs> <laughs> and the voice said, you need to stop eating. And I was like, okay, stop eating what? what? And the voice said everything. And I was like, what? Okay, and and I was like, for how long? And the voice was like, just stop eating for now, and like we'll deal. Like you'll see, you'll see, you know. And and that was that. That was the message. So I stopped eating because I mean it was such a weird phenomenon. Again, I'd never experienced anything like it, but I trusted that maybe there was something going on. And so I stopped eating, and of course, like eating is very important. So I started having like protein deficiency. I started having like real hallucinations, and I was like really freaking out and thinking I was like talking to God and stuff. And just to be clear on this podcast, like I was not communicating with God. I was just like protein deficient, you know. uh, (laughs) Like maybe I communicated with God when I heard the voice. Like that seemed more God-like to me than what happened after that because I was really losing my mind. And then after three weeks of like basically not eating and like you know kind of like chomping on a cucumber if I thought I was going to faint. I um, looked down at my stomach and I'd lost like 10, 15 pounds or something. And I looked at my stomach and there was this huge, like, what do you call it? Bowling ball sized lump on my stomach. And I was like, what is this? (laughs) But I hadn't seen it before because I was a little bit heavier. You know, I was like more J-Lo, you know, and I went from J-Lo to like Kate Moss and I was like, oh, what is this? You know? And... 
so I went to my dad, who had been a medical doctor before he became an awakened shaman, and I said to him, hey, Papa, like, what is this? And he goes, oh, well, either you are three months pregnant or, like, six months pregnant. He's like, or you have a very big tumor. <gasps> and and uh, so he, like, again, we because we were, like, very poor and my dad was, like, this awakened like guru type just so like do super unmanageable yeah. he had like saved some famous OBGYN's life 10 years prior so he was like I'll just call him so he called him and that OBGYN like snuck me into the VIP ward of this like Long Island like this fancy Long Island hospital and then proceeded to like do an emergency four hour procedure where he carved this seven pound tumor out of what? my uterus oh my god it was in your uterus it was in my uterus. Yeah, and he said to me, like, before I went under, he was like, you probably, like, the chances of you ever having children are, like, 1%. He's like, I'm going to do my best, but oh. you, you like, that you just, your uterus is completely taken over by the tumor. And then he spent four hours carving it out, and when I awoke, he was like, you're fine, and now you can have kids. What? So did the shadowy figure go away after that? Yeah, that was only like the week to let me know that I should yeah. stop eating. So do you think that the shadowy figure was negative or do you like, what do you make of that figure? I make, I think it was my body communicating with me that there was a tumor inside oh. me and that was the way that it communicated. Like yeah. it, it manifested itself as an, uh, an, a visual hallucination. I don't think there was anything yeah. like woo-woo about it. Yeah. I really think my body just was trying to tell me that it had a tumor in it. Did that bring you even closer, like to your intuition, or did you did you ever hear a voice like that again, or a message like that again? The next time I heard that voice, um, I mean, I've heard that voice a lot of times. Like mm -hmm. after my daughter died, I like laid down on the ground in the hospital and I tried to pray, mm -hmm. and I didn't know how to pray back then because I was, you know, like a crazy little kid. And I laid on the floor and I said, "God, I don't know how to pray, and oh. I don't feel it's right for me to pray." because I don't know how to, mm -hmm. you know? Like, I was like, God, you know better whether my daughter should live or not, so do what you have to do. Mm. And and I remember saying, God, I don't know how to pray, and God said to me, no, you don't. And I was like, wow, like, I don't know, it just really hit me. I was like, wow, I really don't know how to pray. Damn. And, um, yeah, that was big. Yeah, that was ruthless, savage. <laughs> God was, yeah. God was God real was like, savage. Girlfriend, you need to wake the fuck up. Yeah, I was like, no, oh. you don't. Bye. Mm. Damn. Okay. I wish you were here in person, yeah, by the way. Yeah, literally. Um, your energy is Yeah, amazing. you're amazing. Um, and this is blowing my mind. So, okay. So, so back to the to the meditation, um, the piece. So we talk about the importance of meditation. Can we talk about your meditations, how you meditate, or how you lead people through meditations? Sure. So I do several things. I mean, I myself meditate for 30 minutes a day, mm -hmm. which just means that I sit in silence for 30 minutes. I light a candle. I buy fresh flowers. Um, sometimes I incorporate, like, some poetry or some art into the meditation to kind of infuse um, a safe space for my soul to come in. Mm -hmm. And because uh, the soul is, like, not a thing that really feels comfortable in this crazy world. That's why we need to create conditions that make it safe for the soul to enter. Mm, love that. And, um, and when I guide others, um, if it's a private client, like I take them through like a very intensive inventory of what's blocking them from their contact with their divinity, with mm. their like holy self within themselves. Because usually people, when they start meditating, will find that their life first becomes more difficult. It's not like you just start meditating and all of a sudden you're like, wow, I'm like Superman. Like it's yeah. more like you meditate. And you were like, wow, I have like a smoking problem. Or you'll be like, wow, like mm. I eat too many donuts. Or yeah. Because meditation makes you aware of what it is you're doing to separate yourself from your divine self and your mm. true self. So that's one thing. And then if I do big groups, when I do like the huge meditation experiences that I hold, I have all my participants participate in the, the system that I founded called the Center of the Cyclone Series, where they do a, an ancient Sufi eye-gazing experience, and I score it with my music. So, like, I'll blast my music, and they'll gaze into each other's eyes in a very specific way, and I hold the space for that to happen. That also, like, creates a shock. I like to think of my meditation more like a mixture between, like, if you took um, an art installation at the, you know, at a the MoMA mm -hmm. and merged it with, like, an avant-garde cinema, and then you merged it with, like, a Deepak Chopra talk. Like, you get 
what I'm doing. Like it's not just it's not just meditation. It's also infusing the world of art and music because I do believe like during the Renaissance. You know, in the Medici schools, they painted like there was a reason they were painting these paintings, which we still look at today, mm-hmm. and we're still using as like a form of awakening. Or you look at someone like Leonardo da Vinci, like he didn't have to sit there and just meditate all the time. He was also like a scientist and an and a, and a painter. You know. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to us about the center of cyclone that you started, and how that's different, that's, and like how it is yeah, an immersive a, experience? Center of the Cyclone is, um, it's a meditation experience, so it's kind of like using the world of art, meditation, and I'll do experiences with by a certain fashion designer, mm-hmm. and then I'll blast my music, and then sometimes there's a lighting installation around us, or we'll be in a museum or an art gallery, like I just did an event at Paloma, and so people, and then people will gather, I'll take them into a state, I'll give a talk, and then I'll do some very simple meditation exercises. And then the grand finale of the center of the cyclone experience is this ancient Sufi eye-gazing experience. And the, the blasting of the music makes it feel more like you're inside of a music video than you're at. Like, you know, it doesn't feel like being mm. at a, you know, like at a, at a temple in India. You know, it's different. Do you, um, do you play, and you play your music during that time? Yeah. And has music been, so it seems like when you were young, did, did you also, were you also into music? Yeah, I came out, sing, like I literally came out of my mom's belly oh. and started singing instantly. Yeah, it's like, it's almost, that's been such a constant in your life, like through even, you know, the darker, quote unquote, darker times. It seems like that's been like a constant in your life. Can you talk a little bit about how music has impacted you and sort of what you think that relates to spirituality in your life? I mean, I've been blessed with a voice that carries um, the power of emotion. You know, mm. like it flows through me. That's so I true. Sing, I, you know, I just when I sing, things happen. Mm-hmm. Like something comes through me, and so it's a very, it's a very intense thing. You know, it's hard to really put a, it's hard to put words to music, right? Because music is literally the sound of the universe occurring, mm. yeah. and. Um, I guess I just take it very seriously. Like, to me, music is meant to be, it's a sacred animal, you know? And I just, for me, I don't know how I got so lucky that I got to merge the worlds of spirituality and meditation and music, but that is you, and I feel so blessed because I don't I don't think I would be complete if the music wasn't a part of it. Mm-hmm. Now, so you're based in New York, right? Yeah. So um, both Krista and I, um, lived in the city for a while. Um, and how, how do you navigate a big city, all the, the, the noise, both literally and figuratively? Um, I know a lot of our listeners live in big cities and just sometimes it's easy to get, um, lost, uh, spiritually lost too. So do you have like daily routines or mantras or practices that keep you grounded as you know everything's just a little bit chaotic around you yes so much you know um you know aside from the meditating half an hour a day then I also do divided attention for most of the day Mm. and um I also you know interact with other awakened people I feel like it's really important to have a community and to be around people who inspire you. I have an incredible partner in life, my fiance, and he inspires me. He also meditates, like he meditated before we started dating. So I think it's good to find Mm -hmm. partners and it's good to find crew that have similar beliefs because the truth is the lower consumes the higher. So if you aren't fighting like your fucking life depends on it, you're not going to stay blissed out. Like bliss is not yours. Bliss is something that, you need to put effort towards mm-hmm. because we have, you know, and I'm, a, I'm writing a book, uh, so that my book agent's working on that right now, but my, my book is going to talk about the laws that are working against us. Like on this planet, we have at least 48 laws on any normal day working against us having an awakened experience. So even if you're like the Buddha, you have, a lot of laws working against you. And so as actually somebody who has had a lot of awakened experiences, I have less laws 
than the average person. But that mm-hmm. doesn't mean that I have them, I have less laws naturally. I like had to work really hard to get to this place. And then I have to continue a daily maintenance to maintain that freedom. What are some of, can you talk about those laws? So what are some of those laws and like examples that people have that they have to abide by? Well, some of the laws, like for instance, one of the laws is negative emotions, mm-hmm. right? So like, you're just going to, they, they happen without your volition. You're not, you're like, wake up and there's not like a little voice that goes, Hey, would you mind if we started feeling a lot of self pity right now? Yeah. Like no one asks for your permission. It just happens. And so that's a law. And when you start to understand that and you start to observe it over years by using the tool of meditative observation, you become more refined and therefore can catch the negative emotion in its inception period. Mm. So like there was a time in my life where I would feel a negative emotion. And then two days later, I was like in full on misery and depression. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But I now today I feel like a negative emotion. And I'm like, okay, I, you know, I'm there when it starts being born mm-hmm. it's like yawning and opening its eyes and it's like mm, I'm about to get real irritable you know <laughs> mm-hmm. and I can like I know how to deal with that and it's much easier to deal with a negative emotion in its inception than when it's like full-blown fucking going crazy on you mm-hmm. you know so that would be one law another law is imagination um, and not in like the Einstein kind of way but like just imagining imagining that they're talking about you and imagining that you went to that dinner, but then they they didn't like you mm. and imagining that, um, your best friend is hotter than you and imagining that your boyfriend's going to cheat on you. Like that kind of imagination is a law. And so noticing that we spend so much, such a large percentage of each day imagining things that aren't real and being able to separate yourself from that is also another meditation practice right that's knowing these laws and i think that's why my book is going to be useful is when you know what these laws are you can separate yourself from them more easily if you don't know that imagination is killing you you can't stop it Mm. has anyone ever written about those i've actually i've never heard anything like that no not they haven't i mean there's a few like very unknown books that like a hundred people have read that my father passed down to me um, but yeah, I'm, I'm one of the, I feel very much like a pioneer of this work and bringing it to, to our crowd and to our demographic. I love that. Yeah, we'll have to so have you exciting. back on to talk about your book when it's, yeah when it's ready. This is random. Yeah. Have you had your dad, have you talked to your dad since he's passed? Like you've had him visit you or anything like that? No, I don't, you know, I'm not, I don't function that way. Like, I function on a much more, like, logical, like, it's much more energy than Mm -hmm. it is a person. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. I feel I'm communicating with the forces of what I would call, like, divine energy. And Mm -hmm. so I'm either plugged into that or I'm not. But I, I don't believe that my father is specific inside of that. I believe that when we die... We become one with, with like this infinite, perfect light that flows through all of us. So I'm either plugged into that light or I'm not. One thing I do do, though, is I pray to my ancestors every morning. That's mm-hmm. part of my daily ritual. I ask my father and my mother to be with me all through the day and to help me with my life and to guide my thinking. Um, that's really, I found that that really serves me. I also believe that prayer is more important than meditation. Like, if you have to choose one, I would I would choose prayer. And mm-hmm. that, I only say that because prayer is communicating in the form of asking. And I've learned that if you don't ask, you won't receive. And, re- and meditation is receiving. So if you're just sitting there, like, waiting for something to come down, it's not going to come unless you beg for it. So I see prayer is like a form of humbling yourself, like saying, I actually don't know. I don't know whether I should turn left or right. I don't know whether I should, you know, date Mm. one person or seven. I don't know whether I should become a lawyer or a doctor. Like something inside you does know. And if you don't ask that thing to communicate with you, then you'll never know. I love that. And for praying, remember when God told you you didn't know how to pray. Now that you know, what is sort of what is praying like for you? Is it like just the act of sitting down and asking, or is there a process that you go through when you're, you know, praying? Yeah, I'm so grateful today. I do know how to pray. Prayer is not like shopping. Mm-hmm. It's not like it's not like writing a list for Santa Claus where you're like, and then I'd like a million dollars, and then I'd like, you know, I think. 
Um, that's awesome. That's like vision board. You want to make a vision board? Great. But like prayer is really more about, please help me to surrender my fake self so that I can be completely surrendered to what you have me do on this planet. There's a, like seeing yourself as a Trinity and imagining that you have a body and a mind. And then there's a part of you, a sacred, invisible, beautiful part of you that's made out of pure light. And I don't, some people call that God. I'm not religious, but I just believe there's a part of me that is invisible. And that is the part of myself I communicate with. So I say, please guide my life. Please tell me what to do. And that's the same thing that said to me four and a half years ago, oh, by the way, you're a spiritual teacher. And I was like, wait, what? Like, mm. I was like, first of all, I'm not 50. Second of all, I don't have a beard. Third of all, I'm not a man. <laughs> like, how am I a spiritual teacher, you know? Mm. And the voice was like, I'm just here to, you know, relay information. Like, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not here to chat. So bye. No. Yeah. Wow. You're like, damn it. And how do you... How do you um, teach your students to get quiet? I think people get so frustrated in the process of meditation. They're not quite sure if they're doing it right. How do you um, guide them to, like, release all judgment and just get quiet enough to maybe um, receive that message? Um, Because a lot of our listeners are either beginner meditators or have never meditated. Well, this is why the laws are so important, Mm. because it's like, um, I can't teach someone how to be quiet. What I can teach them is what's making them so irritated. Mm. And if they can start, like, kind of chiseling away, like, I see it as we are the David, you know, the statue, the David, but we're also the artist chiseling away to get the David out. We're both of those. And so you need to learn how to chisel away so that you can find out who you are. Underneath all the bullshit, underneath all the imagination and the negative thinking and the suffering and all these things that we love so much is the real us. And, like, mm. I've discovered the real me, and I don't, I don't suffer because the real you doesn't suffer. Mm. I love that. Well, so I guess that's – so, yeah, then when I do speak to my students, I just say, like, buckle down, like, get ready because – you know, get ready to look, get mm-hmm. ready to see how full of shit you are. That's the first step. It's not like, now just relax. That's crazy. Like, that's not even, how that's not even possible. <laughs> Damn. Okay, last question um, about that. So um, the inventory thing, so related to that. So what is some of the bullshit that comes up for people that you've seen? Like, what could people expect their bullshit to be that's coming up for them? Um... Yeah, most people are addicted to a lot of different ideas. They're addicted to um, the idea that they're not enough. Mm-hmm. They're addicted to the idea that they don't deserve certain things. They're addicted to the idea that they can't find what they actually want in life, so they settle. Um, people are often liars, and they don't know that. Mm-hmm. They're everyone around them they're hiding their true personality they're not vulnerable they're not authentic they're afraid to connect like people generally build strong beautiful artists like artists like to kind of come out like a kabuki you know yeah and they come out into the world and they like they know they're kabuki they know they're kabuki real well and by working with me like i help them to see that the kabuki isn't working Mm -hmm. like it's not serving them and so to kind of look to see how they can be more authentic. And then, that, like, on a general life level, like, people generally don't make as much money as they'd like. They generally yeah. don't mm. date the people they actually want to date. They cheat on people. Or they find partners that cheat on them. They have shitty relationships with their friends where they talk, they gossip behind their back. Um, they're overly dramatic. Like, a lot of people, I'm sure you know, are addicted to drama. Like, they can't just live a life where joy is, the per- like, the perpetual state because then they're afraid that that's too boring. Mm-hmm. So they create problems so that their suffering can be somehow, like, an, a form of entertainment for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely yeah, see that. Yeah, that is so true. Especially, yeah. I think, at, um, in our 20s, too. You know, mm-hmm. we talk about the transition between our 20s and our 30s a lot. And... Um, now that we kind of have the clarity and the groundedness to 
um, allow ourselves to be attracted to those that bring us joy and fill us up. But I I think in our 20s, I was definitely stuck in a group and around people who were addicted to the drama, to the gossip, to the negative, to just finding, yeah, the worst. Um, I could talk for three more hours. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So amazing to have you. We would love to know what you're most excited about this in the next six months to a year. What's coming up? Um, yeah, I mean, I think writing my book is exciting, um, and releasing that to the world, um, doing more huge activations, um, around the world and sharing this work with everyone around me. Um, that's really exciting to me right now, maybe getting pregnant, uh, in the fall or in the winter. That's exciting too. That's amazing. And, uh, yeah, so that's, yeah, I mean, just life is amazing, you know, and just sharing my music more widely and, Mm. and scoring scoring more things, uh, bridging the worlds of fashion, uh, meditation, like modeling, like being in the world in a way where um, the world can start seeing that wisdom and meditation and wellness are actually very integral, even on a superficial level, that they need to be brought to all places. Like what, whereas wellness used to be a thing that was like luxuriously for the 1% or something, mm-hmm. I think bringing that to everybody and making it more mainstream and essential that people would, would never think, like, I want the future to look like people being, like, meditating in their elementary school mm-hmm. and not remembering a time where that wasn't on offer. Yeah. So amazing. Thank you so much for talking to us. Um I don't know. I have like I'm speechless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this it's is really beautiful. special. I know we were all, we were all over the place. So it's thanks so for. It's so good to connect with you guys. I love what you're doing. Aww. I love your whole vibe, Aww. and so I'm so stoked. And I I'm I come to LA, so I'd love to connect. Yes, I oh, would love that. Where can um and for the people that are listening, how can they connect with you? Where are you on socials, or where can they where can they hear from more from you? Yeah, I mean, definitely follow me on Instagram. It's mm-hmm. uh, guided by BS, mm-hmm. all one word. And um, I have my album is on Spotify and iTunes. It's BS, just my first name, and the record's called The Lunar. Mm-hmm. It's really good to meditate with. And if you go to my website, which is bssimkin.com, there are several free meditations on there and music videos. Um, and so, you know, I really enjoy giving those resources away people tend to meditate with me. I'm also the voice of an app called Expectful. So for any woman who's listening who is pregnant or looking to get pregnant, there's an app called Expectful, which I'm the voice of, and you can get that app and meditate with me on your way to pregnancy and even all the way through the, the very trimesters. That's amazing. That um, and, and closing this episode will be um, your music. So really excited to share that with our listeners. You're yes, welcome. they're going to love it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Biet. We'll link everything in our show notes. Um, we're excited to see you when you come to L.A. We can't wait to meet you in person, and we know that everyone is just going to love this episode. So thank you, Almost 30 Nation. We will see you next week. Thanks, Biet. Thanks, guys. Have a great, great day. Oh, you, you as too. well. Bye. 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 There is no